Section 12 of Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 4, by John Calvin. Translated by Henry Beveridge. Chapter 7, Part 2. 9. The fourth remaining species of power is that of hearing appeals. It is evident that the supreme power belongs to him to whose tribunal appeals are made. Many had repeatedly appealed to the Roman pontiff. He also had endeavoured to bring causes under his cognizance, but he had always been derided whenever he went beyond his own boundaries. I say nothing of the East and of Greece, but it is certain that the bishops of France stoutly resisted when he seemed to assume authority over them. In Africa the subject was long disputed, for in the Council of Milavita, at which Augustine was present, when those who carried appeals beyond seas were excommunicated, the Roman pontiff attempted to obtain an alteration of the decree, and sent legates to show that the privilege of hearing appeals was given him by the Council of Nice. The legates produced acts of the council drawn from the armory of their church. The African bishops resisted, and maintained, that credit was not to be given to the bishop of Rome in his own cause. Accordingly, they said that they would send to Constantinople, and other cities of Greece, where less suspicious copies might be had. It was found that nothing like what the Romanists had pretended was contained in the Acts, and thus the decree which abrogated the supreme jurisdiction of the Roman pontiff was confirmed. In this matter was manifested the egregious effrontery of the Roman pontiff, for when he had fraudulently substituted the council of Sardis for that of Nice, he was disgracefully detected in a palpable falsehood. But still greater and more impudent was the iniquity of those who added a fictitious letter to the council, in which some bishop of Carthage condemns the arrogance of Aurelius his predecessor, in promising to withdraw himself from obedience to the apostolic see, and making a surrender of himself and his church, suppliantly prays for pardon. These are the noble records of antiquity on which the majesty of the Roman see is founded, while, under the pretext of antiquity, they deal in falsehood so puerile that even a blind man might feel them. Quote, Aurelius, says he, elated by a diabolical audacity and contumacy, was rebellious against Christ and St. Peter, and accordingly deserved to be anathematized. What does Augustine say, and what the many fathers who were present at the Council of Milavida? But what need is there to give a lengthened refutation of that absurd writing, which not even Romanists, if they have any modesty left them, can look at without a deep feeling of shame? Thus Gratian, whether through malice or ignorance I know not, after quoting the decree, that those are to be deprived of communion who carry appeals beyond seas, subjoins the exception, unless perhaps they have appealed to the Roman sea. What can you make of creatures like these, who are so devoid of common sense that they set down as an exception from the law the very thing on account of which, as everybody sees, the law was made? For the council, in condemning transmarine appeals, simply prohibits an appeal to Rome. Yet this worthy expounder accepts Rome from the common law. 10. 
but to end the question at once the kind of jurisdiction which belonged to the roman bishop one narrative will make manifest donatus of casa nigra had accused sicilianus the bishop of carthage sicilianus was condemned without a hearing for having ascertained that the bishops had entered into a conspiracy against him he refused to appear the case was brought before the emperor constantine who, wishing the matter to be ended by an ecclesiastical decision, gave the cognizance of it to Milciades, the Roman bishop, appointing as his colleagues some bishops from Italy, France, and Spain. If it formed part of the ordinary jurisdiction of the Roman see to hear appeals in ecclesiastical causes, why did he allow others to be conjoined with him at the emperor's discretion? Nay, why does he undertake to decide more from the command of the emperor than his own office? But let us hear what afterwards happened. Sicilianus prevails. Donatus of Casa Nigra is thrown in his calumnious action and appeals. Constantine devolves the decision of the appeal on the bishop of Arles, who sits as judge, to give sentence after the Roman pontiff. If the Roman see has supreme power not subject to appeal, why does Melciades allow himself to be so greatly insulted as to have the bishop of Arles preferred to him? And who is the emperor that does this? Constantine, who they boast not only made it his constant study, but employed all the resources of the empire to enlarge the dignity of that see. We see, therefore, how far in every way the Roman pontiff was from that supreme dominion which he asserts to have been given him by Christ over all churches, and which he falsely alleges that he possessed in all ages with the consent of the whole world. 11. I know how many epistles there are, how many rescripts and edicts in which there is nothing which the pontiffs do not ascribe and confidently arrogate to themselves but all men of the least intellect and learning know that the greater part of them are in themselves so absurd that it is easy at the first sight to detect the forge from which they have come. Does any man of sense and soberness think that Anacletus is the author of that famous interpretation which is given in Gratian, under the name of Anacletus, that is, that Cephas is head? Numerous follies of the same kind which Gratian has heaped together without judgment, the Romanists of the present day employ against us in defence of their see. The smoke, by which, in the former days of ignorance, they imposed upon the ignorant, they would still vend in the present light. I am unwilling to make much trouble in refuting things which, by their extreme absurdity, plainly refute themselves. I admit the existence of genuine epistles by ancient pontiffs, in which they pronounce magnificent eulogiums on the extent of their see. Such are some of the epistles of Leo. For as he possessed learning and eloquence, so he was excessively desirous of glory and dominion. But the true question is, whether or not, when he thus extolled himself, the churches gave credit to his testimony." It appears that they were offended with his ambition, and also resisted his cupidity. He in one place appoints the bishop of Thessalonica his vicar throughout Greece and other neighboring regions, and elsewhere gives the same office to the bishop of Arles, or some other throughout France. In like manner he appointed Hormistas, bishop of Hispala, his vicar throughout Spain, 
but he uniformly makes this reservation that in giving such commissions the ancient privileges of the metropolitans were to remain safe and entire these appointments therefore were made on the condition that no bishop should be impeded in his ordinary jurisdiction no metropolitan in taking cognizance of appeals no provincial council in constituting churches but what else was this than to decline all jurisdiction and to interpose for the purpose of settling discord only in so far as the law and nature of ecclesiastical communion admit twelve in the time of gregory that ancient rule was greatly changed for when the empire was convulsed and torn when france and spain were suffering from the many disasters which they ever and anon received when illyricum was laid waste italy harassed and africa almost destroyed by uninterrupted calamities in order that during these civil convulsions the integrity of the faith might remain or at least not entirely perish the bishops in all quarters attached themselves more to the roman pontiff in this way not only the dignity but also the power of the see greatly increased although i attach no great importance to the means by which this was accomplished it is certain that it was then greater than in former ages and yet it was very different from the unbridled dominion of one ruling others as he pleased still the reverence paid to the roman see was such that by its authority it could guide and repress those whom their own colleagues were unable to keep to their duty for gregory is careful ever and anon to testify that he was not less faithful in preserving the rights of others than in insisting that his own should be preserved i do not says he under the stimulus of ambition derogate from any man's right but desire to honour my brethren in all things there is no sentence in his writings in which he boasts more proudly of the extent of his primacy than the following quote, i know not what bishop is not subject to the roman see when he is discovered in a fault quote. however he immediately adds quote, where faults do not call for interference all are equal according to the rule of humility End quote he claims for himself the right of correcting those who have sinned if all do their duty he puts himself on a footing of equality he indeed claimed this right and those who chose assented to it while those who were not pleased with it were at liberty to object with impunity and it is known that the greater part did so we may add that he is then speaking of the primate of byzantium who when condemned by a provincial synod repudiated the whole judgment his colleagues had informed the emperor of his contumacy and the emperor had given the cognizance of the matter to gregory we see therefore that he does not interfere in any way with the ordinary jurisdiction and that in acting as a subsidiary to others he acts entirely by the emperor's command thirteen at this time therefore the whole power of the roman bishop consisted in opposing stubborn and ungovernable spirits where some extraordinary remedy was required and this in order to assist other bishops not to interfere with them therefore he assumes no more power over others than he elsewhere gives others over himself when he confesses that he is ready to be corrected by all amended by all so in another place 
though he orders the bishop of Aquileia to come to Rome to plead his cause in a controversy as to doctrine which had arisen between himself and others, he thus orders not of his own authority, but in obedience to the emperor's command. Nor does he declare that he himself will be sole judge, but promises to call a synod, by which the whole business may be determined. But although the moderation was still such that the power of the Roman see had certain limits which it was not permitted to overstep, and the Roman bishop himself was not more above than under others, it appears how much Gregory was dissatisfied with this state of matters. For he ever and anon complains that he, under the colour of the episcopate, was brought back to the world, and was more involved in earthly cares than when living as a laic. That he, in that honourable office, was oppressed by the tumult of secular affairs. Elsewhere, he says, quote, so many burdensome occupations depress me, that my mind cannot at all rise to things above. I am shaken by the many billows of causes, and after they are quieted, am afflicted by the tempests of a tumultuous life, so that I may truly say I am come into the depths of the sea, and the flood has overwhelmed me. From this I infer what he would have said if he had fallen on the present times. If he did not fulfill, he at least did the duty of a pastor. He declined the administration of civil power, and acknowledged himself subject, like others, to the emperor. He did not interfere with the management of other churches, unless forced by necessity. And yet he thinks himself in a labyrinth, because he cannot devote himself entirely to the duty of a bishop. 14. At that time, as has already been said, the bishop of Constantinople was disputing with the bishop of Rome for the primacy. For after the seat of empire was fixed at Constantinople, the majesty of the empire seemed to demand that that church should have the next place of honor to that of Rome. And certainly, at the outset, nothing had tended more to give the primacy to Rome than that it was then the capital of the empire. In Gratian, there is a rescript under the name of Pope Lucinus, to the effect that the only way in which the cities where metropolitans and primates ought to preside were distinguished, was by means of the civil government which had previously existed. There is a similar rescript under the name of Pope Clement, in which he says that patriarchs were appointed in those cities which had previously had the first flamens. Although this is absurd, it was borrowed from what was true." for it is certain that in order to make as little change as possible, provinces were distributed according to the state of matters then existing, and primates and metropolitans were placed in those cities which surpassed others in honours and power. Accordingly, it was decreed in the Council of Turin that the cities of every province which were first in the civil government should be the first sees of bishops." but if it should happen that the honour of civil government was transferred from one city to another, then the right of the metropolis should be at the same time transferred thither. But Innocent, the Roman pontiff, seeing that the ancient dignity of the city had been decaying ever since the seat of empire had been transferred to Constantinople, and fearing for his see, enacted a contrary law in which he denies the necessity of changing metropolitan churches as imperial metropolitan cities were changed. But the authority of a synod is justly to be preferred to the opinion of one individual, 
and innocent himself should be suspected in his own cause. However this be, he by his caveat shows the original rule to have been, that metropolitans should be distributed according to the order of the empire. 15. Agreeably to this ancient custom, the first council of Constantinople decreed that the bishop of that city should take precedence over the Roman pontiff, because it was a new Rome. But long after, when a similar decree was made at Chalcedon, Leo keenly protested. And not only did he permit himself to set at naught what six hundred bishops or more had decreed, but he even assailed them with bitter reproaches, because they had derogated from other sees in the honour which they had presumed to confer on the church of Constantinople. What, pray, could have incited the man to trouble the world for so small an affair but mere ambition? He says that what the Council of Nice had once sanctioned ought to have been inviolable. As if the Christian faith was in any danger if one church was preferred to another." or as if separate patriarchates had been established on any other grounds than that of policy. But we know that policy varies with times, nay, demands various changes. It is therefore futile in Leo to pretend that the see of Constantinople ought not to receive the honour which was given to that of Alexandria by the authority of the Council of Nice for it is the dictate of common sense that the decree was one of those which might be abrogated in respect of a change of times. What shall we say to the fact that none of the eastern churches, though chiefly interested, objected? Proterius, who had been appointed at Alexandria instead of Dioscorus, was certainly present. Other patriarchs whose honour was impaired were present." It belonged to them to interfere, not to Leo, whose station remained entire. While all of them are silent, many assent, and the Roman bishop alone resists, it is easy to judge what it is that moves him. Just because he foresaw what happened not long after, that when the glory of ancient Rome declined, Constantinople, not contented with the second place, would dispute the primacy with her and yet his clamour was not so successful as to prevent the decree of the council from being ratified. Accordingly, his successors, seeing themselves defeated, quietly desisted from that petulance, and allowed the bishop of Constantinople to be regarded as the second patriarch. 16. But shortly after, John, who in the time of Gregory presided over the church of Constantinople, went so far as to say that he was universal patriarch. Here Gregory, that he might not be wanting to his see in a most excellent cause, constantly opposed. And certainly it was impossible to tolerate the pride and madness of John, who wished to make the limits of his bishopric equal to the limits of the empire. This, which Gregory denies to another, he claims not for himself, but abominates the title by whomsoever used, as wicked, impious, and nefarious. Nay, he is offended with Eulogius, bishop of Alexandria, who had honoured him with this title. Quote, See, says he, in the address of the letter which you have directed to me, though I prohibited you, you have taken care to write a word of proud signification by calling me universal pope. What I ask is that your holiness do not go farther, because whatever is given to another more than reason demands is withdrawn from you. 
I do not regard that as honour by which I see that the honour of my brethren is diminished. For my honour is the universal honour of the church, and entire prerogative of my brethren. If your holiness calls me universal pope, it denies itself to be this whole which it acknowledges me to be. End quote. The cause of Gregory was indeed good and honourable, but John, aided by the favour of the Emperor Maurice, could not be dissuaded from his purpose. Syriac, also, his successor, never allowed himself to be spoken to on the subject. 17. At length Phocus, who had slain Maurice and usurped his place, more friendly to the Romans, for what reason I know not, or rather because he had been crowned king there without opposition, conceded to Boniface the Third what Gregory by no means demanded, that is, that Rome should be the head of all the churches. In this way the controversy was ended. And yet this kindness of the emperor to the Romans would not have been of very much avail had not other circumstances occurred. For shortly after, Greece and all Asia were cut off from his communion, while all the reverence which he received from France was obedience only in so far as she pleased. She was brought into subjection for the first time when Pepin got possession of the throne. For Zachary, the Roman pontiff, having aided him in his perfidy and robbery when he expelled the lawful sovereign and seized upon the kingdom, which lay exposed as a kind of prey, was rewarded by having the jurisdiction of the Roman see established over the churches of France. In the same way as robbers are wont to divide and share the common spoil, those two worthies arranged that Pepin should have the worldly and civil power by spoiling the true prince, while Zachary should become the head of all the bishops and have the spiritual power. This, though weak at the first, as usually happens with new power, was afterwards confirmed by the authority of Charlemagne for a very similar cause for he too was under obligation to the Roman pontiff, to whose zeal he was indebted for the honour of empire. Though there is no reason to believe that the churches had previously been greatly altered, it is certain that the ancient form of the church was then only completely effaced in Gaul and Germany. There are still extant among the archives of the Parliament of Paris short commentaries on those times, which, in treating of ecclesiastical affairs, make mention of the compacts both of Pepin and Charlemagne with the Roman pontiff. Hence we may infer that the ancient state of matters was then changed. 18. From that time, while everywhere matters were becoming daily worse, the tyranny of the Roman bishop was established, and ever and anon increased, and this partly by the ignorance, partly by the sluggishness, of the bishops for while he was arrogating everything to himself, and proceeding more and more to exalt himself without measure, contrary to law and right, the bishops did not exert themselves so zealously as they ought in curbing his pretensions. And though they had not been deficient in spirit, they were devoid of true doctrine and experience, so that they were by no means fit for so important an effort." Accordingly, we see how great and monstrous was the profanation of all sacred things, and the dissipation of the whole ecclesiastical order at Rome, in the age of Bernard. He complains that the ambitious, avaricious, demoniacal, sacrilegious, fornicators, incestuous, and similar miscreants, flocked from all quarters of the world to Rome, 
that by apostolic authority they might acquire or retain ecclesiastical honors, that fraud, circumvention, and violence prevailed. The mode of judging causes then in use he describes as execrable, as disgraceful, not only to the church but the bar. He exclaims that the church is filled with the ambitious, that not one is more afraid to perpetrate crimes than robbers in their den when they share the spoils of the traveller. Few, say he, look to the mouth of the legislator, but all to his hands, not without cause, however, for their hands do the whole business of the Pope. What kind of thing is it when those are bought by the spoils of the church who say to you, Well done, well done? The life of the poor is sown in the highways of the rich, silver glitters in the mire, they run together from all sides. It is not the poorer that takes it up, but the stronger, or perhaps he who runs fastest. That custom, however, or rather that death, comes not of you. I wish it would end in you. While these things are going on, you, a pastor, come forth robed in much costly clothing. If I might presume to say it, this is more the pasture of demons than of sheep. Peter, forsooth, acted thus, Paul sported thus. Your court has been more accustomed to receive good men than to make them. The bad do not gain much there, but the good degenerate. And when he describes the abuses of appeals, no pious man can read them without being horrified. At length, speaking of the unbridled cupidity of the Roman see in usurping jurisdiction, he thus concludes, quote, I express the murmur and common complaint of the churches. Their cry is that they are maimed and dismembered. There are none, or very few, who do not lament or fear that plague. Do you ask what plague? Abbots are encroached upon by bishops, bishops by archbishops, etc. It is strange if this can be excused. By thus acting, you prove that you have the fullness of power, but not the fullness of righteousness." you do this because you are able, but whether you also ought to do it is the question. You are appointed to preserve, not to envy, the honor and rank of each. I have thought it proper to quote these few passages out of many, partly that my readers may see how grievously the church had then fallen, partly, too, that they may see with what grief and lamentation all pious men beheld this calamity. End of section 12